Greetings, cultivators worldwide. Jordan River here, back with more Growcast, giving you what you need to succeed. Today, we are on the line with Nick from Rooted Leaf. I'm very excited about this series of episodes. First of all, we are going to do away with the monthly themes, but I am going to do a series of episodes on nutrition with Nick from Rooted Leaf. This was heavily requested. I was just talking to members of the Order of Cultivation about it. And we're going to go through uh, sometimes individual minerals, like today we're going to talk about nitrogen, or sometimes we'll group together different nutrients, and we're going to teach you how they function in nature, how they function within your plants, and what you need to know to grow perfect cannabis when you are thinking about these types of nutrients and minerals. So I'm very excited for today's episode. Before we get into everything, I do want to let you know, speaking of the order of cultivation, our membership, we will be closing our doors and going to invite only. This is something we've talked about. I love our membership. It is a little family, and I've toyed with the idea of making it exclusive for a while. Now, we don't want to exclude anybody who truly needs our services. If you're out there and you're ailing, we still do have an application process. You can write us at contact at growcastpodcast.com and inquire to apply to get into the membership. But for now, I want to protect our community, and we will be trying this and going a little bit more private here in 2023 just to test this out. So, This is a heads up. Thank you to all the members at the Order of Cultivation, growcastpodcast.com slash membership. And I hope to see you there. And like I said, we're going to go to invite only so that I can focus on what I've built here and uh, protect the community as well. Always email us with any questions, inquiries, or applications. You can talk to me at contact at growcastpodcast.com. Now, before we get into today's episode with Nick, shout out to AC Infinity, the best grow gear in the game. Code GROWCAST15 saves you 15% at acinfinity.com. They've got the thick, sturdy tents with the thick canvas and the thick tent poles, the best tents in the game. They've got the fans that you need, the inline fans, the cloud ray oscillating fans now. Again, code GROWCAST15 for 15% off. The best quality grow gear you can find. They've also got lights and scissors and pots and hangers and so much more. But when it comes to the fans and the tents, there's no one else out there that does it better. The inline fans, the Cloud Line series are fantastic. The S series is the simple series. Still comes with a 10-speed fan controller. And the T series comes with a controller that lets you automatically dial in your temperature and humidity. acinfinity.com, code GROWCAST15 for 15% off. They even have grow kits that come with everything you need to expand Get that second veg tent, get that second flower tent you've been thinking about, save with the kit, and use code GROWCAST15, which now works on those kits. Saving you extra money with the best gear in the game, acinfinity.com. They've been our partners for years. We brought these guys along a long time ago. They've really, really expanded and done a great job. acinfinity.com, code GROWCAST15. Okay, everyone, let's do this. Nick from Rooted Leaf, all about nitrogen. This episode is going to change the way you look at this mineral. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, podcast listeners. You are now listening to Growcast. I'm your host, Jordan River, and I want to thank you for tuning in again today. Before we get started, as always, I urge you to share the show. Tell a friend about Growcast. Tell a smoker. Tell somebody about Growcast. Turn someone into a grower. It's the best thing you can do. And find everything we're doing at growcastpodcast.com slash action. You'll find the seeds there, Growcast Seed Code, the classes, and membership, which I'm going to turn to invite only here, and we're going to see how this goes, our secret society of growers. So thank you to all the members, and thank you to you listeners for tuning in and being loyal audience members. Today, we are in deep dive January. I think I'm going to cut out the themed months so we can go back to a more freeform style, but... Today's episode is actually going to be the first in a series of episodes, so you can look forward to that uniformity coming forward here. We're going to do some deep dives, if you will, on plant nutrition. We're going to go over all the macronutrients. We're going to go over the primary, secondary nutrients. We're going to do micronutrients and just talk about how these minerals interact with our plants and what we need to know about them to produce the best cannabis at home possible. And what better guest to do that with than Nick from Rooted Leaf. I can know you guys know and love him. He's on the line now. What's up, Nick? How you doing, man? Hey, Jordan. I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Hell yeah. Definitely excited to uh, talk about nitrogen here. Yes. Starting at the beginning, right? I'm excited to do this whole series with you. Of course, Nick, the owner of Rooted Leaf Agritech. You can find them at rootedleaf.com. Code GROWCAST for a whopping 20% off. Rooted Leaf is great, man. It is the 
It is one of the backbones of my nutrition regimen myself. I love your product and all the work you do. And you just break down plant nutrition science in a way that's digestible. A lot of this stuff is hard for lay people like myself, man. I have to hear about cations and anions, you know, five or six times before it really clicks. You know what I mean? So I hope to really get this information drilled into the heads of growers over the course of this series. So thank you, man, for your awesome education and for doing this series. Absolutely. You're welcome. And I definitely appreciate the opportunity here. I really enjoy uh, hearing the feedback that I get from the Growcast community. It's definitely something that inspires me to kind of keep moving forward, keep pushing the boundaries and keep spreading this knowledge and information. It's killer, dude. We, we absolutely love it. So get ready, everybody. We're going to go into nitrogen today and we've got many more episodes planned. Now, starting at the beginning, the big N, NPK, you see it right there on the front. It's the first letter. I'm very excited to talk to you about nitrogen, man. Let's start at the top. If you had to back it out 30,000 feet here, how would you explain to somebody with no prior experience, what is nitrogen's function and role when we're talking about general botany? Before we get into anything specific, what does nitrogen do? It's a great question, actually. You know, it's, it's uh, nitrogen is kind of an enigma of an element, particularly because if you look at the concentration of nitrogen in the atmosphere, you know, just to kind of compare it against CO2 concentrations, most growers, even in really well-dialed environments, may push the CO2 concentrations up to about, you know, 1,500, maybe 2,000 parts per million. The air that you and I are breathing right now is a whopping 780,000 parts per million. So 78% of the air, maybe 80% in some cases, is pure nitrogen gas. But the form that it's thin is locked up pretty tightly. It's a dinitrogen bond, and it's very, very difficult to pull apart and to break down. There are specialized microbes in nature which facilitate this breakdown, and they provide sort of the common formats of nitrogen being ammoniacal, positively charged, like amino acids, for example, or negatively charged anionics, such as nitrates. So nitrogen is widely considered a very, very highly limiting element in terms of crop productivity, specifically because it's so difficult to break that dinitrogen bond apart, and also because it takes so much energy to convert, let's say, you know, nitrates into their ammoniacal forms that plants can actually make amino acids. So in this process of conversion, there's just so much energy that's spent that the plants oftentimes, in almost all cases anywhere around the world, experience severe limitations. Going back about 100 years, there were processes like the Haber-Bosch process, which was invented to supply liquid and soluble forms of nitrogen to plants. And then all of a sudden, because the energy had already been done in a manufacturing plant versus in the soils or in nature, Mm -hmm. the available amount of nitrogen going into biomass production increased significantly. And so, you know, this invention of synthetic fertilizers, particularly nitrates and the other nitrogen species, those feed about 50% of the population of the entire world. About 4 billion people depend on synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. And that should just go to show people how important this one element is. It's used by plants to construct everything from small, tiny nucleic acids that are literally constituents of DNA, all the way up to major proteins that you can see with your eyes, such as chlorophyll, that green pigment that allows plants to capture energy from the sun. So it's very, very diverse in terms of what roles it can fill. But the important thing that I wanna highlight for people is not to get lost in the matrix of possibilities. You know, oftentimes it's very easy to kind of look and see all of these different things, you know, hundreds of thousands of different proteins and protein complexes and all this very, very complex stuff. It gets very, very easy to get lost in the mix. So I want to kind of pull people back and set the expectations as such. Most of the nitrogen that you ever apply to your plants, about 90% is going to go into one of two proteins. One of them is chlorophyll, which is that green pigment. You can see it with your eyes. Mm -hmm. Hence, if your plants are deficient in nitrogen, the first thing that you do is you notice a yellowing effect start to happen because most of the nitrogen that you apply is going to go into chlorophyll or the second one that's most abundant is is called rubisco and rubisco is an enzyme that is like a giant vacuum cleaner it sucks co2 out of the air and it creates sugars within the plants and so between these two you really have about 90 percent of your total nitrogen being sunk into one of two of those protein complexes. Hmm. Um, it helps simplify things a little bit because most people are going to be able to look at their plants and connect with chlorophyll and conceptually what is chlorophyll. And then same thing with rubisco. You know, if you have CO2 meters in your room, even if it's something like a 
you know, you're doing a grow in a closet as opposed to a high end expensive manufacturing facility. You're going to be able to see changes in the nitrogen status correlate specifically with CO2 metabolism. It's going to be a little bit more of a scientific measurement than it is just looking at the plants and seeing that yellowing and being able to visually identify nitrogen deficiency. But certainly if you have the right gear and you can monitor the CO2 levels, you can definitely correlate the nitrogen status and level with the ability of the plants to take up CO2 from the air. So yeah, that's that's the really important thing for people to focus on is that there's a direct hook between nitrogen and the CO2 concentrations of the air and also the light intensity. So now all of a sudden we're building out this broader picture by saying, okay, well, nitrogen metabolism must inherently fit into carbon metabolism via CO2 right. fixing. And then also, I guess you could say it's uh, sunlight metabolism, right? The energy coming in from the sun is also a central theme for nitrogen as a compound. So I hope that simplifies just that 30,000 foot view a little bit. Definitely does. And, and I thought it was interesting how you say that, you know, nitrogen is kind of the tough element, right? Like there's these processes in nature, uh, for instance, you know, uh, bacteria in the soil that can fix nitrogen from the air. Those are like, those are very energy taxing processes, like you said. So when you instead replace that with a chelated nitrogen fertilizer, you just kind of raise that ceiling. I had never thought of it that way before. And then interesting the way you say you break it down between nitrogen is responsible for building all these different things within the plant, but primarily they go into those two places. And you've talked about Rubisco quite a bit before. I know that goes into a lot of like your work. So that all makes a lot of sense. How does nitrogen kind of move through nature and move through our media? And when we're using it in our gardens, mm -hmm. what is nitrogen doing here in our cannabis gardens? Yeah, you know, it's a very, very interesting question. And I will say that conversation of nitrogen cycling in terms of like how microbes do it and how plants do it. It's a very, very complex process, but the important thing to keep in mind is that to convert nitrogen between its various states or forms is an extremely energy intensive and highly expensive process. When you look at most metabolic processes within plants, it usually costs one or two ATPs. And let's just equate these ATPs to dollars so that people understand maybe there's purchasing power that's involved here. Plants have to buy stuff so to speak. Sometimes they pay the microbes to access these elements. Other times they spend money you know, to power their own enzymatic machineries that can facilitate some conversion of elements. The thing about nitrogen is that it spans what are called redox states. It's either fully reduced or fully oxidized. The total span is from negative three to positive five. So there's this huge gap of energy. You have to cross eight different states. And those eight different states require something like just over a dozen, maybe it's between 12 and 14 discrete redox reactions that are facilitated by microbes. So you can start off with something like dinitrogen gas. And if, as you kind of increase the oxidation state, you kind of go, you know, increasing or decreasing the oxidation state. Um, if you increase it, you go closer and closer towards nitrates, but you got to pass first through nitrous oxide and then nitric oxide, and then you get nitrate, nitrite, I'm sorry, and then you get nitrate. Going the opposite direction where it's more reduced, it goes from dinitrogen gas to hydroxylamine, to hydrazine, and then finally to ammonia. And ammonia forms ammoniacal nitrogen. Right. So in the process of converting this nitrogen and continuing to change its energy state, there is a, the equivalent of 14 to 16 ATPs that have to be spent as opposed to one or two for most other biological processes. Wow. So it's the expensive mineral. This is very, mineral. very energy intensive. Nitrogen is is the bougie mineral. It's the expensive mineral. Now, when you talk about ATP, this is something you've brought up in previous episodes, you know, this adenosine triphosphate, kind of the universal energy currency, right? Mm -hmm. This is a limited amount of energy that the plant can put towards different things. And it sounds like if these processes are happening naturally, nitrogen is the expensive one. That is very interesting. Yeah. And it goes without saying that there are microbial relationships out in nature that help ease the burden on plants to spend that much energy and access nitrogen. If you look at legumes, for example, legumes, generally speaking, account for about 20% of the global protein supply. So it's a very, very significant concentration of nitrogen that is formed into proteins and amino acids, which then feeds human beings around the world, about 20% overall. What happens with legumes is that they form relationships with microbes called rhizobia. And these rhizobia basically have specialized tools that help them suck dinitrogen gas out of the air and then convert that into more soluble species like the ammoniacal species, such as amino acids, or even some of the nitrate species. 
this is an energy intensive process and the energy actually comes in from the plant. You know, if you think about how the plants interface with the microbes, the plants absorbing all of this solar radiation, this energy from the sun, and it's using that energy to produce sugars. And these sugars are a carbon substrate. They themselves, actually, you can think about the sugars that plants produce as bottled sunlight, I always like to refer to, because it's really the energy of the sun that's being captured in the sugar molecules. So you have this, you have this like bottled up sunshine, this energy coming in, and that energy is used to feed the beneficial microbes. When the sugars are produced in the plants, then the legumes, they work their way down to the roots, and there's this exchange that happens. There's this energy going out from the plant in the form of the sugar, and then there's energy being absorbed that's coming in from the microbe in the form of the amino acid or whatever flavor of nitrogen is being passed to the plant. Very, very complex stuff. But what it goes to show you ultimately is that over the course of you know 100-ish million years, the process of taking nitrogen out of the air and really just recycling it in the soils and all that good stuff has become so specialized in nature that you have specific relationships that have been formed for a very long time. They're very long-standing. They're very synergistic. These microbes spend ultimately less energy than the plants would, so it's beneficial for the plants. It has a net savings in energy. And then on the flip side, the microbes can't really photosynthesize nearly as well as the plants can. So when it comes time to feed themselves off sugars and organic acid residues and things of that nature, the microbes are fed by the plants, which have a much easier time. So this is a very, very complex and dynamic, long-standing relationship that's been happening for a very, very long time. Yeah. And it's interesting to see, like you said, the the economy change with the addition of those microbes. So freaking cool. And the link between the plant itself, the microbes, and then elements like nitrogen. Nitrogen is a, when you talk about these fertilizers, nitrogen is a concern with how mobile it is, right? Isn't nitrogen one of the most fast traveling fertilizer elements? Like it runs off really bad, doesn't it? Yeah, most of the species of nitrates, they're incredibly soluble in water, which makes them great for hydroponic applications or for recirculating systems. Maybe a little bit different when we're talking about a field that's, you know, quote unquote, drained waste, right? You, you water the soil, but then it runs off somewhere else. And in the case of the Midwest and the Mississippi River, that's where all of this excess slash runoff collects. Right. And so oftentimes there's kind of a structural and functional sort of difference between what the nitrates inherently have in terms of their properties versus what the capacity of the soil to hold high amounts of nitrates is like. If you overapply nitrates, certainly 40 to 50% of that can run off, which is why we see these algal blooms that are happening in the mouth of the Mississippi River as it runs out to the Gulf of Mexico. This stuff definitely accumulates and it causes a large you know, amount of economic damage. There's something like $4 billion worth of economic damage that's estimated to occur every year just as a result of excess nitrate fertilization and excess phosphate fertilization that ends up in waterways and kind of polluting the environment around us. So the fate of nitrogen ultimately is to be highly soluble, in, in specifically in the form of nitrate. It's very, very soluble in water. Ammoniacal forms of nitrogen, you know, those experience kind of the opposite of effect overall. If they undergo the wrong kind of chemistry, they can actually be volatilized. And so they can kind of return to the atmosphere. First, they off gas and that kind of smells like ammonia. And certainly a lot of farmers that apply urea incorrectly experience this. They actually get that kind of ammoniacal smell on their fields, which, which is basically the nitrate, or I'm sorry, the ammoniacal form of nitrogen being oxidized and then converting back to its dinitrogen gas state present naturally in the air. So you have kind of considerations going both ways. You have the nitrates being soluble, runoff and leach through waterways. And then on the flip side, the ammoniacal forms can oxidize and kind of leach out back to the atmosphere. So it's hard to capture nitrogen efficiently. And one of the strategies for that has been to do, uh, you know, amino acid based products. Right. And, and that's kind of a shortcut hack, right? You're cutting out a lot of that expensive process that you mentioned and just applying the amino acids themselves. Is that a correct lay interpretation? Yeah. Yeah. Amino acids are kind of balanced in their charge. And as plants grow day to day, the one thing that they're trying to do above all else is maintain a state of balance. You know, plants don't have feet. They can't just move up and out of the soil and find a new place to live. So whatever is being thrown at them in the moment, they constantly have to make adjustments to in real time too. You know, if the sun is beating down on them pretty intensely, they have one photosynthetic state, you know, all of this light energy is coming in, they're capturing all of this energy and they have to find an outlet for all of this energy. 
But then if a cloud passes overhead and cuts that solar irradiance down by 25, 30%, maybe up to 50%, the plants quickly have to adjust to make sure that there's not too much energy going out relative Whoa. to what's coming in. So that this transfer wild. of energy, this thermodynamic buffering within plants, if you will, this maintaining of an equilibrium in a harmonized, balanced state of metabolism is very difficult to achieve with nitrogen in particular, specifically because as we mentioned earlier, it takes so much energy to convert and to process and to reduce and to oxidize and to do all of this stuff that if you can give the plants an amino acid, that already has a charge balance inside of it, which is great for plants. Now, naturally speaking, as plants intake nitrogen, one of the first things that they're gonna do is seek to make amino acids. You know, if you give your plants nitrates, they use the power of the sun to convert that nitrate to an ammoniacal form. And then along comes a sugar residue. You know, first it's maybe glucose or sucrose, and then it's broken down into an organic acid residue. And there's about five or six distinct ties in between the carbon metabolism and the amino acid biosynthesis. Um, obviously, there's you know quite a few amino acids out there. Some are essential, some are non-essential. But the idea basically is that an amino acid is like an ammoniacal nitrogen sandwiched with an organic acid, and, and hence you get the amino acid. It's kind of, you know, a shortened term for the word. I didn't know amino was a kind of conjunction for ammoniacal. That's, that's new to me. I like that. Yeah. It's ammoniacal and organic acid kind of combined together. So just say amino acid. That's really, really interesting. The important thing to remember too, is as plants are seeking to sink the nitrogen that they're processing, they have to have these organic acid residues, which means that they have to have the constant flux of carbon that's available for them coming through the system. The real catch for them is that the carbon metabolism and the nitrate metabolism, those are inherently competitive against each other because you have CO2 in the air and you have NO3 coming up in the water. These two both have the same problem, the O2 and the O3. The plants don't really have a need for it and they don't really care. And ultimately, those extra oxygen molecules result in the fully oxidized nature of carbon in the form of CO2 and nitrate in the form of NO3. So the plant is spending this energy to break those oxygens off and kick them away because it doesn't need them. So when you have the nitrates being reduced into ammoniacal form, what happens is that the reduction power that's required to do that conversion gets taken away from the reduction power that could convert CO2 into a soluble sugar. So this is a catch-22. This is a very, very a complex problem for plants. Exactly. It's a very, very complex problem for plants to solve. So once they actually do reduce the nitrate into an ammoniacal form, they then have to combine that ammoniacal form with an organic acid. And depending on what kind of organic acid we're talking about, there's the aromatic amino acids, there's the ones in the glutamate family, aspartate family, pyruvate family, uh, serine family as well. So these ultimately take slightly different types of organic acid residues. But the point ultimately is that you have this representation of a middle ground between carbon metabolism and nitrogen metabolism, that is what an amino acid is. It's kind of this meeting point in the middle, if you will, where the way that the carbon is processed and the way that the nitrogen is processed meet each other and shake hands. And they kind of come out as a neutral charge balanced form called an amino acid. And of course, there are many, many amino acids out there. Is that something that you incorporate into rooted leaf? Like what, how, what does that mean to you if you're trying to provide nutrition to a plant with your products? Yes, yeah, so we definitely have amino acids inside of our products. Our newest, latest, and greatest version of Lush Green is actually 100% amino acid-based product. The amino acids are great. I mean, what they do primarily for plants is provide them with a stored pool of fixed energy. That energy has already been spent to convert the nitrate into an ammoniacal form and then bind that up with an organic acid. Jeez. And really what we're doing is repurposing that free energy that's available to the plants and giving it to them. Now, having said that, amino acids in certain cases can be structural in the sense that they build proteins and they build structures and, and the physical biomass of the plant is partially reflected by the concentration of nitrogen. There are other examples, though, where uh, certain species of amino acids, like uh, glutamic acid, for example, it could be used as a signaling molecule. So as it works its way around the plants, it spreads a particular kind of message. And that kind of message may have something to do with the nitrogen and the carbon status of plants. You know, amino acids are really interesting because they're frequently interconverted once you introduce them into the plants. It's not like they have linear pathways where they start off as one thing and they, you know, discreetly and distinctly end up as another thing. 
there's all kinds of steps along the way where you have this deamination reaction, which means you remove the amine group. You have a transamination reaction, which is where you transfer it around. And you've got all these different types of possible reactions, decarboxylation reactions, where maybe the organic acid residue is, is removed and repurposed. Um, plants have this ability, wow. this massively impressive ability to convert not only from one amino acid to the other, but kind of do it in a way that balances out the rest of the amino acid profile in the plants. And this becomes incredibly useful when the plants experience some kind of stress. So when we're talking about drought stress, for example, if you take the sap of a plant and you do a tissue analysis and measure the concentration of amino acids within the sap, what you're going to find is that there's a lot of proline that's produced inside of the plants. They convert most of their sort of free amino acid pools into something like proline because proline acts like a sponge. It helps the plants absorb water and hold on to water. So during times of drought and stress, you'll find that the expression of amino acids is slightly different depending on what the plants actually need. And arginine is another great example. It has the highest nitrogen to carbon ratio, meaning that if the plants are deficient in nitrogen, you may find that they're trying to store up most of that nitrogen in ammoniacal form, an amino acid-based form, basically. So they might opt for that one? That's, that's insane. Yes, and it's a way for them to shove excess nitrogen and prevent it from being lost. Because again, that the cost of acquiring that nitrogen can be so great, plants really don't want to lose it. So what they do is strategize and find ways to shove in every nook and cranny that they possibly can find, shove excess nitrogen without preventing it from oxidizing and kind of being returned back to the atmosphere, or even just changing the oxidation states because some flavors of nitrogen, like nitric acid, for example, can be harmful to the plants. Nitrite certainly is not healthy. And there are examples where you know, people talk about reactive oxygen species and the accumulation of reactive oxygen species can cause a breakdown in the cellular machinery because it's just too much oxidative stress for the plants. They start to break down and blow up. The same thing is true with reactive nitrogen species that because of the charge that they can carry, they can actually do damage when, you know, when the levels or concentrations of a particular type of nitrogen exceed or surpass the plant's ability to deal with it. And that's why they like to quickly convert stuff like nitrates into their ammoniacal forms and then combine some organic acid skeletons with that ammoniacal form and create that charge balance, which helps the plants maintain a state of balance as they grow. We will be right back in just a moment. But before that, Pulse Grow, everyone. Pulse, the industry leaders in grow room monitoring. PulseGrow.com is where you can find them. Code GROWCAST will save you on your Pulse One or your Pulse Pro grow monitor. Now, no one does it like Pulse, especially the Pulse Pro. This thing is a total grow room monitoring system. You'll have peace of mind and in-depth consistent historical data. Now the Pulse Pro comes with all sorts of fancy readings. You got your CO2, your PPFD, you've got a spectrometer right in there. In addition to everything you already expect, like VPD, temperature, humidity, light intensity, even dew point. It works with all operating systems, all in live time. Get yourself a Pulse One or a Pulse Pro and monitor your grow room live anytime you want. That data will help you improve your grow. You can do data-driven changes with this information. And maybe most importantly, the Pulse will alert you if anything goes wrong in your grow. You don't want to work so hard and take all this time and build up this wonderful garden just to lose it to one malfunction. Well, Pulse will tell you if something goes wrong, you can get in there, you can fix it. It's peace of mind. It's the most integrated, most intimate way to get to know your garden. Find it at pulsegrow.com. Use code GROWCAST for the best grow room monitoring, the industry leaders in grow room monitoring, folks. Pulsegrow.com, code GROWCAST for savings. Thank you to Pulse. All right, everyone, let's get back to it. This has all been incredible. And I feel like I have a much better view of, of nitrogen's process in the garden. But when it comes to cannabis specifically, can we talk about that? You know, I th feel like nitrogen oftentimes just gets relegated to like, oh, that's the one that's important for veg, right? And it makes your plant green. So I'd love to talk to you about like how it functions in cannabis, how the needs change between seedling stage, veg stage and flower stage, and also how the functions of the mineral and the plant itself change over those courses. Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of give people some perspective, this is, you know, when we talk about the, the varying nitrogen nutritional needs of cannabis plants across their lifespan, really what we want to do is talk about a couple of different things. And one of them is going to be the recycling or repurposing of nitrogen. 
And the reason that I want to just bring this up for a minute specifically is because the leaf surface is a very, very dynamic environment. I mean, we just at the beginning of this episode described how chlorophyll and rubisco are kind of like two of the major sinks of nitrogen within plants, meaning if you have more nitrogen and all other elements are kind of dialed in and you have all other things in check, really the increase in nitrogen supply will result in an increase of chlorophyll and rubisco, even if your leaves don't necessarily become bigger in terms of their overall surface area, you can have an increase in the density, which means for every square inch or square centimeter that you measure of your leaf, you have more tightly packed proteins that are closer together. There's more of them. And therefore, as more energy from the sun is coming in, more of that energy can be trapped because there's more chlorophyll. And then that energy can be used to feed more rubisco, which captures more CO2 out of there. Is that why your leaves turn dark? Because it's so crowded with that chlorophyll? Is that why with high nitrogen, you have darker leaves? It could be, yes. It could be partially in function as a function of the density, as well as the overall concentration. They generally speaking go hand in hand, meaning the higher the quantity, generally speaking, the higher the density. However, there are some examples where maybe you get a dilution of the overall proteins. Like in high CO2 environments, you may have noticed that your plants grow much bigger leaves. Well, the leaf structure itself being cellulose is mostly carbon. And so if you have carbon supplementation going into your plants, the overall surface area, just generally speaking, tends to increase. Wow. What this does, because you have a larger surface area, is it kind of dilutes the proteins across that surface area, dark green leaves, but the distance between the chlorophylls from each other may actually be great, regardless of the color overall. But yeah, generally speaking, there is that correlation there. It's in a very dynamic state of constant flux. The leaf surface itself is actually a very violent environment. There's a lot going on constantly. They're being bombarded with all this solar radiation and there's this, all this oxidative stress because the air that you and I breathe is very rich in oxygen. And that oxygen likes to oxidize things. And CO2 in the air is oxidized. Plants are trying to take that out and reduce it. So here you have plants working against a chemical radiant you know, being surrounded in an environment that's oxygen rich and being bombarded by sunlight, which can cause reactive oxygen species that are highly destructive to chlorophyll. They can quite literally explode them, which does happen in nature. If you were to look at the cross section of a leaf in real time, what you'd see is all of this light energy coming in, these photons coming in, and they're literally bombarding the chlorophyll. And that chlorophyll sometimes is effectively capturing and transferring that energy. Other times, the energy is too great or too intense and the chlorophyll bursts and it breaks apart and it gets destroyed. And so you have this constant process of chlorophyll and rubisco being reconverted back and forth. It's being built up and broken down, built up and broken down. And this is not a small amount that's going on, actually. The plants every single year produce and more turnover more than 10 billion tons in total of rubisco and chlorophyll. This number is pretty staggeringly large. And just to give you some perspective on what this means, you know, chlorophyll and rubisco are microscopic tiny engines within the leaf surface. You can't really see them, but 10 billion tons of something that's microscopic is insane. It equates to about 30,000 Empire State Buildings, more than half a million Statue of Liberties, and more than 1 million Eiffel Towers, just in terms of combined weight. So that, again, that weight, that 1 million Eiffel Towers or 30,000 Empire State Buildings, half a million Statue of Liberties, this is all just the quantity of nitrogen that's being built up and then broken down and built up and broken down just between rubisco and chlorophyll. This is a dynamic process that happens every single day. So to some extent, we want to be mindful of the plant, the, the ability of the plant. We want to be mindful of the ability that the plants have to repurpose nitrogen as it kind of gets broken up and built down and it gets converted between its reduced and oxidized states, which is constantly happening within the plants. So that being said, on the vegetative side, when the cannabis plants are growing, they need access to larger concentrations of nitrogen because in that mode or in that stage of their growth, they're in chlorophyll building mode and rubisco building modes. They're trying to always build up supplies because they have new leaf tissue popping up and they want to populate that leaf tissue as heavily and as densely packed as they can with these two proteins because it just results in better growth for the plants overall. Now, at a certain point in the flowering stage, the plants stop producing new leaf material. They stop producing as much chlorophyll and they stop producing as much rubisco. And it's really, you know, when the plants stop producing these leaves and they start focusing on the flower development that the nutritional needs change a little bit. You know, the overall nitrogen that you want to supply to your plants 
has to go down a little bit, which can be tricky to do because of the way that some of the fertilizer programs are set up out there. You know, oftentimes you have calcium nitrate and magnesium nitrate, potassium nitrate. These are all forms of nitrogen for the plants, but they're also forms of minerals that cannabis plants actually need more of during the flowering stage, particularly calcium. The calcium levels have to go up for the plants, which can be tricky to do if you're trying to reduce the nitrogen, but increase the calcium. Right. Particularly if you're using a standard CalMag that has the calcium nitrate. That's the problem. It is the problem. It is the problem. So what ends up happening is that applying excessive nitrates to the plants actually reduces their ability to make terpenes and to make cannabinoids. Because again, those are competitive pathways. The CO2 and the NO3 got the same problem. That oxygen isn't necessary. So the light energy coming in from the sun goes towards either CO2 being reduced or NO3 being reduced, not both at the same time. Just like if you go to the store with $5 and you want to buy you know, $10 worth of groceries, it's not going to happen. You can't cut that $5 bill in half and pretend like it works. You only have so many resources available to get what you want. And plants are much in the same position. They have to partition their energy reserves out appropriately. That makes and without getting so much too far sense. into the complex nature and the interplay of carbon metabolism and nitrogen metabolism, it's safe to say that they compete against each other. So having said that, terpenes and cannabinoids rely on reduced carbon, not on reduced nitrogen. Right. And therefore, at a certain point in the flowering stage, dropping the nitrate levels for the plants actually increases the potential for terpene and cannabinoid expression for the plants. Certainly. That makes perfect sense. Now, what happens if you drop it too low? Well, it depends. Again, it's all about timing. The main purpose of the flowers, the floral structures themselves, is to produce sugars. And these sugars work their way up through trichome stalks and into the actual trichome heads. The trichome heads are the site of the synthase enzymes. That's where they're active. That's like the job site where you're sending your raw materials to. Right. And the raw materials themselves are the sugars that get broken down. There's at least two distinct pathways that they get broken down and then they get produced into sort of the precursors that get funneled into the terpene pathways and the cannabinoid pathways at large, I should say. To make the stuff that we want, sure. Correct, correct. So the floral structures, again, as they grow, their whole purpose is to produce sugars. Those sugars rely on rubisco being present, but they're not nearly as great in terms of their surface area as the fan leaves or the water leaves, right? You look at the comparison between even some of the sugar leaves that are produced on the actual flowering buds those little sugar leaves are just like little sites of photosynthetic activity Jeez. where maybe some extra chlorophyll and some extra rubisco can produce the sugars that are needed. And the sugar leaves obviously have trichomes on top of them. So you have this very close distance, very, very small distance between the sites of photosynthetic activity and the sinks of that photosynthetic activity. Yes, that makes so much sense. What a delicate balance, having enough nitrogen for that rubisco, but not too much to take away from the terpene and cannabinoid pathway. Exactly. And the whole point there is sugar production is the thing that we're chasing because the sugars ultimately are what create the building blocks for all terpenes and all cannabinoids. Without those building blocks, you don't get any of them. And so if you oversupply nitrates to the plants, they have no choice but to funnel that light energy that's coming in and saying, sorry, we don't have enough money to buy the sugar because we need to buy the ammoniacal form. And last time I checked, I haven't seen any grower do a lab report on chlorophyll concentrations in their flower and then go and try to sell to the market. Look at my chlorophyll concentration, guys. <laughs> it's super high percentage. This is, this is fireweed. You know, it's, it's all about the terpenes. It's all about the cannabinoids. The higher concentrations of those you achieve, the stronger your, your foothold in the market is going to be, the higher quality your medicine is going to be, the better price point you're going to get in both the recreational and the medical markets. No one cares about chlorophyll concentrations. No one cares about rubisco concentrations. And so at a certain point, you do want to cut out that nitrogen. I'd say in the mid to late stages of bloom, there's this thing happening within plants, this senescence phase. And senescence is basically the plants are taking their stored up pools of energy, some of the chlorophyll, for example, that exists, or some of the rubisco or some of the other proteins that, it, that existed within the plants, but mainly chlorophyll. And I'm going to bring this up because the chlorophyll you know, as the plants go through senescence and chlorophyll breaks down, you can visually see that the green leaves the plants and you're left with more yellow, orange, purple kind of pigments. The plants may not look the same as they look when they get a deficiency, which is more of like a light yellow or a pale yellow. I mean, this is going to come through like really 
just highlight or yellow. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a little so bit different, even, right? You see it everywhere. So evenly. Exactly. Yeah. And what the plants are trying to do is they basically say, okay, what, what, what can I do here? I can either lift nitrogen up from the roots, which has to, you know, travel a far distance. There's a lot of energy involved in the conversion of nitrate to ammoniacal form and then building amino acids and all this stuff. It requires a ton of energy. Why don't I just go next door to the cell over there and pull out some nitrogen that's stored up in the form of this protein or that protein? I can break it down and I can repurpose it. You know, going back to our conversation around amino acids, there's all kinds of different reactions that can happen with amino acids. They can go, you know, transamination, deamination, they can experience reamination reactions. And, and so the idea basically is the plant has stored energy in the form of some of these proteins and it will access that energy by breaking some of those proteins down because overall it's going to spend significantly less than it does if it just relies on what's coming up from the roots. It's a greater energy expenditure involved with that. And the focus that the plants have in that stage of their life is to produce sugars and to funnel those sugars through trichome stalks which, by the way, do have some limited photosynthetic capacity. There are some chlorophyll pigments inside of the trichome stalks, and even to a certain extent within the trichome heads themselves, but they're very, very limited. They just kind of supply very small amounts of energy that are needed directly to these sites when they That's need wild. them rapidly and in real time. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. It's very interesting. But yeah, you know, it's, it's all about stored energy for the plants. I have observed a lot of what you've said, right? Like when I take a look at at growers who are maybe just getting started and you know they've got their watering on point their garden isn't a disaster they've they've taken the steps they're using some sort of nutritional product i see the big one of the biggest problems that people might ruin their harvest with on an early run is adding too much of that nitrogen late either because they were given a product that they didn't know was high in nitrogen or they were told to add some calmag which had like 4% nitrogen and they had no idea and what ends up happening is it doesn't fucking kill their plants or anything like that, but it fucks up their flower structure. Like you said, it diverts some of that energy to new growth. What you described, I've observed empirically so many times, right? You end up with this very dark green, non-senest, less frosty bud product that like maybe it's forcing single leaves suddenly. Like you're pushing so much growth that it's pushing out these non-trichomy single leaves out of the sides of the buds. It's that nitrogen imbalance, right? And it seems like such a delicate process, like I said, to have enough nitrogen for all the processes you need, but not too much nitrogen because it really fucks up your harvest. It does. Yeah, yeah. And it can result in different morphologies. Instead of getting something really tight and compact and shaped like a Christmas tree, you end up with something that, you know, the top of it looks like a little push pop that just kept growing vertically and it had all of these individual little sugar leaves. They almost totally. look like a, like a miniature tongue. Almost, you know, they don't have very much photosynthetic activity, but they have enough. And, you know, going back to it, some of the amino acids, you know, once the plants take up the nitrates and they convert it to their ammoniacal forms and kind of make the amino acids, they have no choice in this, by the way, because if they don't do it, what's going to end up happening is that the nitrates can accumulate and create toxicities because they're not charge balanced. Nitrates right. inherently have a negative charge. And so unless you have you know, the appropriate load of cations like calcium or magnesium or potassium coming in, they don't maintain a charge balance. And the problem there is that if the plants want to utilize the calcium, they can't break it off from the calcium nitrate because then the nitrate is going to exist in an unbalanced form. So how do they balance that out? And the best way to do that is, again, with those organic acid residues, providing the backbone or the spine for amino acids. Once those amino acids are made, some of them are structural and functional Others can be signaling molecules. And so you get this buildup of signaling molecules. And what it results in is you get this plant-wide, this systemic growth difference across the whole plant, meaning that if there's a surplus of nitrogen, there will probably be a surplus of signaling amino acids like glutamic acid that tell the plant, hey, we got a little bit more nitrogen, make a new leaf here. We have enough resources to make more chlorophyll and more rubisco. And the plant just never really finishes up its flowering stage. It doesn't really finish off. It doesn't harden up. The trichomes in one part of the plant may be amber, cloudy, and in another part of the plant, you may still have the white pistils and totally clear trichomes because the plant is kind of caught up in the state of having enough nitrogen, not knowing what to do with it, being more or less forced to produce proteins and chlorophyll and rubisco when it, it at that point in its life cycle, naturally, it doesn't need that and it doesn't want it. 
but it has no choice but to deal with it. Right. You've probably seen something similar to that where you have parts of the plant that, you know, look more filled in and complete than other parts of the plant. Totally. And you can visually see whether it's in the trichomes or even in the pistols and how white versus how reddish, brownish, khaki color they are. Yeah, 100 percent. I've I've definitely observed that. You're right. I want to talk about that toxicity, too, right? Because it seems to me like nitrogen products are one of the fastest to give your plant what's known as nutrient burn, right? Where those tips start getting burnt from the outside in. It seems like I see that a lot when people add too much nitrogen. Yeah, that definitely occurs. I mean, nitrogen being very reactive, particularly the oxidized forms, they can be very, very destructive when consumed in large quantities by plants. But plants actually, you know, most plants, including cannabis, have a very large appetite for nitrates as long as they're charge balanced. So potassium nitrate, calcium nitrate, magnesium nitrate, technically speaking, they're relatively benign within the plants because they're more or less in a charge balanced form. So the plants can actually accumulate and hold on to a lot of these nitrate salts with very little overall toxicity. The toxicity starts to occur when the elements need to be processed. You know, if you have a calcium nitrate, for example, well, the plant may want the calcium, but what's it going to do with the nitrate? You know, unless it's got some excess sodium, it can kind of sequester out. It's not really going to have a choice. It has to process right. both the calcium portion of it and the nitrate portion of it. And at a certain point, there's just so much energy that's being spent. The plants don't have enough energy left to process it. And that's where the burns start to happen. You start to get this reactive nitrogen species build up in the plants, and it can actually start to deteriorate some of the cellular components themselves and cause toxicity, cause damage, that burn. and actually burn. There's a physical burn. So that's the difference between newt burn and other signs of too much nitrogen or nitrogen toxicity, like where the leaves get dark and they get shiny. One is a more destructive, imbalanced effect, and the other is just too much being stored. Yeah, yeah. And there's this important concept of a nitrogen to carbon ratio within the plants. The plants are always trying to metabolize both of these elements in conjunction with each other because it's very, very important to make sure that whatever nitrogen they process to an ammoniacal form, I should say whatever nitrate they process to an ammoniacal form, that it has an organic acid residue that, that is available to accept that ammoniacal group. Because if the plant has a buildup of ammonia with no outlet via the organic acid residues, the ammoniacal forms can also burn plants because they start to build up a positive charge within the plant's tissue and that can physically burn. Just like if you are working out and you're holding your breath, eventually that lactic acid builds up super quickly and it starts to physically burn your muscles. And it's when you have the oxygen coming through your system that those organic acids like the lactic acid, those can be effectively oxidized. And that's how you remove that burning sensation is by continuing to move oxygen through your system. Plants are, you know, in a similar way, they have to deal with this buildup of charged compounds, particularly if the ammoniacal form is built up in excess. What starts to happen is it messes with the plant's ability to split water molecules effectively apart because there's a proton gradient that's generated. Whenever a molecule of water comes up and it's split apart, you know, they want to keep the proton and they don't really have a need for the O2. I mean, it is, you know, Without getting too far into it, it can be repurposed, it can be reutilized, and there are networks which take in that oxygen and utilize it effectively. But just for general purposes, generally speaking, it's the hydrogen there out of the H2O that the plants are looking for. That generates that proton pump and that gradient which helps convert adenosine diphosphate into adenosine triphosphate, ATP, that universal energy currency. And you know, the last thing that you want to do is mess with the plant's ability to make ATP because then you're effectively limiting the amount of horsepower that the engines can produce. And that can happen with a buildup of ammoniacal forms. That positive charge starts to make it more difficult for that proton gradient to be formed naturally within plants. So there's actually a greater energy expenditure that's required in order to properly synthesize ATP and to utilize it. So yeah, a buildup of ammoniacal forms is bad for the plants. And the way to alleviate that is to supply them with more carbon in the form of organic acids, because that will create that sink between the two of them and allow them to convert excess nitrogen into amino acids, which can right. be freely stored, freely moved around. They're balanced out so they don't really burn plants in the true sense of the word. Right. And that's why those types of products that you apply are much more forgiving than some of the other ones when it comes to things like burning. That is okay. That is super fascinating. So let's, let's wrap it together here. Let's bring it together for the home grower, especially. 
This is a very eye-opening episode, and I'm thinking, how do we apply this to the home grower? I think that after understanding how this element moves and works within your plant, you're going to start to see what we're talking about and really pay attention to that nitrogen concentration, right? Do your plants get a little bit dark? Do they get a little bit clawed, right? That clawing is also a sign of too much nitrogen. And maybe next time on the run, you can adjust that and dial that in. Maybe you need to look towards an amino acid product or, or a different line or a line like rooted leaf that has a CalMag with zero nitrogen in it. And I think that also it's important in flower to make sure you're not adding too much or too little, right? So find that balance and make sure that you've got the, you've got the nitrogen dialed in to maximize growth in veg and then back it off in flower so that your plant can still produce the terpenes and the cannabinoids, but has enough nitrogen to produce things like rubisco and do all the other processes that it needs. What other advice for home growers do you do you have here as, as they learn more about nitrogen? Well, you know, the the sort of foundational characteristics of plant metabolism in general don't really change if you're a home grower versus a commercial grower with a multi-million dollar facility. Really what you're looking at is the intensity of the light, the concentration of CO2 in the air, and then what's coming up in the feed water. You know, it's like when you're if you're an engineer and you're building a motor, you need spark, you need air, and you need fuel. And it's really the ratios of those three that produces horsepower. There's obviously other, you know, essential components involved there. But just generally speaking, that's how motors work. They require spark, air, and fuel. Plants are the exact same ways. The spark is the lights, the air is the concentration of CO2, and then fuel is the water that's coming up, and that water contains minerals that the plants depend on. So for the average home grower, you know, let's just say hypothetically that you feel like you overapplied a nitrogen-based fertilizer. Let's say sure. for your, someone's base nutrient that has nitrates, that the recommended instructions are 8 to 10 milliliters per gallon, and you misread that and you doubled up, or you mismeasured and you doubled up. You did 16 to 20 mils per gallon. You may have a slight panic attack and think to yourself, oh, crap, I gave twice as much nitrate as needed. What can I do to alleviate the problem? I would say the best thing to do is to crank up the CO2 concentrations in the air and give them a little bit more light intensity. Because just like a motor, you got more air, you got more fuel, you got more spark, you will make more horsepower. You absolutely will. And the best way to prevent a nitrate burn specifically for the plants is to shove as much carbon as you possibly can inside of those plants. Now, the way that the carbon is going to be metabolized is obviously through the light energy. So if you increase the CO2, you want to increase the light intensity. And if you do those things, you definitely need to increase the EC overall. So for the home grower, definitely keep in mind that as you're throttling the nitrogen levels in the plants, that the nitrogen levels you're supplying to the plants are fundamentally tied to how intense is the light and how rich is the gas. If you got more CO2 and you got more light intensity, your plants have a higher appetite for nitrates, which makes sense in a commercial environment. If you're in a sealed flowering room with high light intensity, and high CO2 concentrations that you need a high EC fertilizer load going into the plants. And most of that EC, at least in the cannabis industry, is going to be measurable, measured by nitrates, basically, because there's so many nitrates that are applied to the plants overall. So, you know, in a commercial setting, the same thing kind of applies. If you increase the light intensity and you increase the CO2, the first thing that you're going to notice is that the plants have a higher appetite. Now, all of a sudden, they look like they're deficient in nitrogen you've been feeding them the same levels overall. So why is that true? Well, because the higher light intensity and higher CO2 created a potential excess sink for nitrates to be sunk into, like chlorophyll. You can increase the chlorophyll density and the rubisco density. So yeah, I mean, whether you're a home grower or a commercial grower, I mean, just keep in mind that your nitrogen feed levels are inherently tied to your light levels and your CO2 concentrations. And if you adjust all three of them with respect to each other, you're going to have a really easy time dialing in how much nitrogen you put on your plants. That's true for the vegetative stage. For the flowering stage, I'd say the, the rule of thumb for me has always been once the plants actually stop growing, they stop stretching, there's not as much vegetative growth that occurs. That's the point at which you want to start to chop out the nitrogen. And I don't mean cut it out entirely. I mean, progressively take it down, you know, little by little, try to find ways to cut it out while keeping the overall nutritional needs of the plants fairly high. And right. what they need in the mid late stages of bloom is not as much nitrogen, but maybe more potassium and more calcium in specific. We are going to get into all of that and more. So stay tuned, listeners. I feel like this is a great nitrogen overview here. We went over how nitrogen functions in nature, how it functions in plants, how it's absorbed, where it's stored, what it does, how it's related to all the things that we care about. 
like growth rates and counterproductive to terpene production and cannabinoid in too high of levels. Again, Rubisco playing a big role in this episode. And, and you talk about that enzyme a lot powered by nitrogen. So that's very, very important stuff. And I hope that this episode opened your eyes, listeners, to this first big letter in the big three, the NPK. I'm sure we can do more. Nick, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for coming on Growcast TV. I'm sure we'll have you on the member show again here soon. Uh, listeners, if you have questions, members, if you have questions, make sure to send them to us. My email is contact at growcastpodcast.com. You can hit us there with any questions that you would like answered on air. And Nick, just thank you, man. You're killing it with Rooted Leaf. I'm loving using the product. I stack my own nutrients and it's an, it's an integral part of my garden. I love not pHing with your product. I throw it in filtered water and I water with it. And man, it's it's just an, it's incredible. So rootedleaf.com, code GROWCAST for 20% off. Anything else? What did I miss here? I mean, I think we had a great episode. I definitely appreciate the opportunity. And like you said, we can, you know, we could go deeper and deeper and further and further into it. But I think it's a good place to start for people. Just treat nitrogen as a simplified a little bit. Just think two things, chlorophyll and rubisco. Chlorophyll, you can see. And as you kind of get a better feel for what strains you know, have heavy nitrogen appetites versus light nitrogen appetites, use those feedback, use those tools, those visual cues that your plants are giving you as a feedback mechanism. If they're pale yellow, add the nitrogen in a higher concentration and see if that corrects the plants. And if you've got a CO2 meter, just try to build out some data. Don't worry about what that data means. Just start capturing those numbers. Take a look at the meter, find out how much CO2 is in the air, find out when your plants are metabolizing that CO2 and just get a better feel for it. Because if you can tie the chlorophyll, which you can see visually, with the CO2 concentrations in the air, which are being depleted by rubisco, you're going to have a really good hold on about 90% of what the plants are doing with nitrogen. And from there, it becomes actually very difficult to burn your plants or to create toxicities or something like that. Once you have this understanding of how nitrogen just at its basic and cursory level fits in to the metabolic processes at large that we understand very well in plants like the light intensity or the needs for PAR and PPFD and, you know, VPD curves and airflow and all this stuff, all of this fits in centrally to nitrogen metabolism. So yeah, it's a simplified way of reducing a very complex topic down to something that I hope people can grasp effectively and make real changes in their garden and see the benefits associated with a more adequate nitrogen program. Man, I, I am so excited for the rest of these episodes. Where do we go next from here? Do we go straight into phosphorus? Yeah, yeah. Let's just go down the line and we'll do phosphorus. Maybe we can talk about PK boosters because that's what most people think of when phosphorus comes to mind is, you know, the PK booster. It's so important, so vital. I'd yeah. love to get into that for the next conversation. I think we can try to do P and K. That'll be the next episode, everybody. I know you love this one. We are breaking it down for you. We are expanding your mind helping you take control of your garden and just understand what's going on. So again, Nick, thank you so much. Everybody support Rooted Leaf, rootedleaf.com, code GROWCAST, 20% off. Just try it. You will love it. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon, Nick. Absolutely. Thank you, Jordan. And thank you to all the listeners. I appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Find uh, Rooted Leaf on Instagram at the Rooted Leaf, I believe. And find their website, rootedleaf.com. Growcastpodcast.com is where you can find us. Go to growcastpodcast.com slash action. I know you'll hear all about it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Hope you're doing incredible things in your garden. This is Jordan River and Nick from Rooted Leaf signing off saying, be safe out there, everybody, and grow smarter. That's our show. Thank you, everybody, so much for tuning in. Thank you to Nick from Rooted Leaf. Stay tuned for more deep dives into these different minerals coming on this very podcast. Now, before we wrap it up, I do want to let you guys know everything that's going on in the Growcast universe. Growcastpodcast.com slash action. Find everything there. The classes, we are in Virginia this weekend. This Saturday, we are in Richmond, Virginia. And this Sunday, we're in Virginia Beach. Growcastpodcast.com slash classes will take you right there. You got to come out to this Living Soil Masterclass. Everything you need to know about organic gardening. Any grow questions you have, we'll answer them. We'll scope your soil live. We'll take a look at your soil food web. We'll tell you how to optimize it and balance it and bring perfect harmony to that rhizosphere in your soil grow. Rhizo Rich is going to be there. He's going to have awesome genetics. This is going to be one of our biggest, most awesome classes to date. And we are coming to Boston in March and we are coming to Missouri in April. Find it at growcastpodcast.com slash classes and stay tuned for some online offerings. That's what you guys have been asking for. And that's what we're going to bring you. You can also find Growcast Seed Co. at growcastpodcast.com slash seed co. All one word. And check out everything we're doing. The Oreos drop. 
coming soon. Our first femme line. Very exciting stuff. Rise or Rich doing some amazing, amazing work. And of course, get in the order of cultivation before we close our doors in just a few days. Growcastpodcast.com slash membership. Check out all the bonus content, the member discord, the member discounts that no one else gets on products like Dino Myco, on our own seeds, and so much more. Check it out, everybody. I cannot wait to see you all in person at the next meetup or the next class. I appreciate you. Hope you're doing beautiful things in your garden. And stay tuned to Growcast for more awesome grow content. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Chlorophyll rubisco are microscopic tiny engines within the leaf surface. You can't really see them, but 10 billion tons of something that's microscopic is insane. It equates to about 30,000 Empire State buildings, more than half a million Statue of Liberties, and more than 1 million Eiffel Towers.